Right, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the whole chapter. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the Christian Standard Bible. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain. Faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. So this is one of the most famous sections in the Bible. It's one of the few chapters in the Bible that is well known outside of Christian circles. I remember a late night conversation with one of my friends. Better start the timer. Uh, with one of my friends in the first few weeks of starting university, and we were a group of about 15 lads who lived on the same corridor on site, and especially in the early weeks, we spent almost every evening together. And much to my frustration, a good 75% of conversations seemed to be uh, based uh, about the TV that they had watched over the past 10 years or so. And unfortunately, I spent my teenage years prior to university as a missionary kid in Pakistan, where my only media-based contact with the world was the BBC World Service on radio. The internet was still a fledgling service in the mid-90s. And if you think that it's slow in parts of Norfolk in 2023, <laughs> you should have tried dial-up 
in the foothills of the Himalayas in Pakistan in 1996. So very rarely could I contribute to these conversations about TV. So you can imagine my delight when one of my friends, upon learning that I was a Christian, wanted to share his enthusiasm about this amazing passage in the Bible about love, referencing 1 Corinthians 13. And in my excitement, I invited him to church the next morning. And in his excitement, which may or may not have been aided by a few beers, agreed to come. (laughs) Of course, there was no sign of him when it came to joining me that following morning. But it was one of my first experiences of interacting with someone who was enthusiastic about a specific passage in the Bible without professing to be a Christian. He was treating scripture much like someone might admire one of Shakespeare's sonnets or a Bob Dylan lyric. In fact, one of the reasons this chapter is so famous is because it's a popular one chosen by church ministers leading weddings. I'm sure many of you have attended a wedding where this was used as the primary passage of scripture. You might have used it at your own wedding. And it has some merit as a piece of writing. There's a mix of hyperbole and emotive sentiment that contributes to what could be interpreted as romantic flair. And as a standalone piece of writing, separated from its context, it benefits from having a a generic, crowd-pleasing appeal. There's no specific mention of God. And the slightly unusual bits about angels and prophecies perhaps adds a touch of welcome spiritual mystery. I mean, after all, it is from the Bible. And what's not to like about being patient and kind to one another? Shortly after I agreed to teach on this chapter in June, the murders of Barnaby Webber, Grace O'Malley Kumar and Ian Coates in Nottingham happened, which you may remember. Barnaby and Grace were students at the University of Nottingham, and Ian was a 65-year-old school caretaker four months away from retirement. The Times newspaper reported on a vigil that was held a few days later, and the headline on the front page used a quote from one of the fathers addressing the thousands, mainly fellow students of the university, who had also gathered. Look after each other and love everyone. And if we ended things here today, now, that's not a bad summary of the chapter. And probably the one many people often go home with. But we can't end here, and for good reason, because 1 Corinthians 13 is not a standalone chapter. In context with the rest of the letter, 
And with the rest of Scripture, it means so much more than that. And neither is it, in my opinion anyway, for all its fame, a particularly good piece of poetry or prose. I don't think it stands up against some of the great Shakespeare sonnets or Bob Dylan lyrics in that way. And I also think that if Paul was here today, he would be quite surprised to learn that this was a popular text for weddings. In fact, as we have studied 1 Corinthians as a church over these past months and all that we've learned about what's been going on, it reads much more like me telling my three kids to stop arguing in the back of the car for the umpteenth time. <laughs> if I have faith that I can move mountains, sounds a bit like if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Or, love is patient, love is kind. Sounds like me saying, just be kind to one another. That's the attempt at being positive, if not a little oversimplistic. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude. Sounds like me descending into negative frustration. If you've, if you've got nothing nice to say, then don't say anything at all. You've been fine up until this point, so don't ruin the day with this silly arguing. And when Paul writes, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. Sounds like me saying, stop being so childish. Yes, I have actually said that to my children. I mean, if they can't be childish when they're children. <laughs> Poor things. But can you see the parallels? Do you also get a sense of the frustration that's coming through? It's a bit of a shift in tone from a wedding ceremony. Although it may prove helpful in a few years down the line. But can you see how the context is so important. It's why we teach the Bible verse by verse here at Servants Church, in order to have the right contextual understanding of Scripture when we are teaching it. So let's have a quick recap of the context here. Firstly, this is written as a whole letter and would have been read out as such. And it didn't come with helpful chapters and verses that we are familiar with. No one in the Corinthian church would have left a reading saying to his mates, I'm not sure about the rest of the letter, but chapter 13 of it, that, that was a good one. And secondly, the city of Corinth had an international reputation for being a port city of self-made, rich inhabitants where pagan morality dominated and almost anything was permissible. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, Paul lists the sort of sins 
that were part of the Corinthians believers' former way of life. They had been sexually immoral, adulterers, adulterers, male homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, verbally abusive, and swindling people out of money. There was also a heavy influence of the Roman law systems, which resulted in in them taking each other to court to settle matters, rather than amicably and humbly between themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. And philosophically, they were heavily influenced by the Greeks and believed, for example, that the physical body was not integral to the soul, which is why Paul had to remind them, also in chapter 6, that their body was a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in them. Between chapters 1 to 12, Paul deals with division, sexual immorality, litigation, idolatry, distinctions between men and women, how to manage food offered to idols, the Lord's Supper, which had bizarrely become an excuse to get drunk and overeat, and the appropriate use of spiritual gifts as a unified body, and the dangers of pride. So it's clear in Paul's letter leading up to where we are now in chapter 13 that some of these former influences on their lives were still playing out and needed to be addressed because, and this is important, the church was also displaying evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Its members were exhibiting many gifts of the Spirit in their worship. We can be a fellowship of born-again believers, but the way in which we exercise our gifts can still be used with sinful motives and in a disorderly way and need correcting and shepherding. We'll hear more about that in chapter 14. But the foundations are set in this chapter. And so we get to the end of chapter 12, which Adam did an excellent job of teaching from last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to watch it on our YouTube channel. I appreciated how he clarified that everyone who is born again is baptized in the Spirit. And God wants each of you to use the spiritual gifts he has given you. And the gifts are intentionally and necessarily diverse. For us to function properly as a unified body, we have each been given gifts. And they are for the profit of all. And while as a body we should desire the greater gifts, we do so by being individually obedient with the gifts each of us has been given. And chapter 12 ends with verse 31. But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. So what is this way? If chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts by themselves, chapter 14, as we'll learn in the following weeks, is about spiritual gifts with love, Chapter 13 is more of a warning about spiritual gifts without love. Now, here's the big idea 
that Paul is teaching the Corinthians, and of course us now, in this part of his letter. The gifts of the Spirit are pointless without the fruit of the Spirit. So let's read the first three verses again. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, I'm going to let John deal with speaking in tongues next week. But it is my opinion in this particular instance that Paul is using hyperbole in each of these three first verses. I do believe that the gifts of the Spirit are in use today. And I'm going to touch on one at the end of this sermon. And I do believe speaking in tongues is a gift for today, and I believe I have this gift, which I use to pray to God quietly with regularly. However, in this instance, I don't believe Paul is teaching about tongues being an angelic language, but rather the part of the primary application for the Corinthians that no matter how superlative their gifting, remember they were arguing about their gifts, It was worthless without love. The same goes for faith that can move mountains and the idea of giving away everything he owned, including his own body. It's taking gifts and actions to their extreme, most extraordinary potential in order to contrast their uselessness if they are done without love. So the subject matter is clear From the start, we're dealing with the importance of love when it comes to exercising spiritual gifts. But before we move on to the next verses, we have to pause and address an issue, and that is the definition of love as it is used here in this chapter. And this is where the English language doesn't really do us any favours, as this one word, and a powerfully emotive word, covers a number of different concepts. A common slogan in our society you will probably recognise from recent years is, love is love. It's effectively stating that love can be what you want it to be. And if you want to define love in a certain way, then who is anyone else to say otherwise? You are your own authority. And of course, it doesn't take long to recognise the shortcomings of that approach, however attractive. But, as it happens, the Bible does give clear definitions about love. So it is good and correct for us to press in and pursue clarity on this issue, and indeed this chapter aids us in that. So, there are five Greek words 
that are translated into English as love. It's worth noting not all of these are in the New Testament, but they were used in, in Greek language. Epithumia, storge, philia, eros, and agape. There are more definitions than there are letters in the English word love. Now, I want you to bear with me on this because it takes us to a fascinating conclusion, one that defines our life as we follow Christ and helps uproot the pride that so easily entangles our motives that Adam preached on last week. So, epithumia can be translated as desire. In a positive sense, it's a genuine physical desire or appetite and plays a good and positive purpose in the physical union of a marriage between a man and a woman. But when epithumia goes wrong, we see what should be a powerful physical connection between two people that grows over time cheapened to one-night stands or multiple sexual partners. When meant negatively, it's translated lust. This type of epithumia would have been the norm in Corinth. Eros is romantic love, but it goes beyond mere sensual or physical desire. It can be present with or without epithumia and leads to a powerful identification with another person. Two lovers experiencing eros are occupied, even preoccupied, with one another. And when eros goes wrong, it can rule our lives. We can lose perspective on life around us and treat others as gods and sole sources of our personal needs. It can lead to illicit relationships if we let it. Eros is a vital component of marriage, but it cannot sustain a marriage over the long haul. After time, you will also need philia and above all agape, which we're coming to. Storge is the love of affection or belonging. Storge love feels like home. It's the kind of love we have for our relatives sometimes simply because they're family. Even if we don't have much in common, they've just always been part of our lives. And there is comfort to their presence. When storge goes wrong, we can treat our family members or long-term friends with apathy or take them for granted or even with disdain precisely because they're always there. So it's easy to stop putting much effort into the relationship. Philia is the love of friendship and companionship. This love is a product of mutual interests. Uh, length of time, shared insights and similar experiences. Philia is sparked when we find common ground with other people. We're fixed on the same things and ideas rather than each other which is eros. When philia goes wrong, we see friendships becoming a source of division, evoking jealousy and pride, perhaps, or forming cliques and creating outsiders, or just falling out of the friendship. 
So this brings us to agape, which is known as the highest of the loves. There are many great definitions out there, including agape love being the steady intention of the will to another's highest good, or an ongoing benevolence, willing what's good or best for another. It is a willful choice to put interest above one's own. It's unselfish, a giving that is sacrificial for the benefit of another. But one of my favorite definitions is by the late Bible teacher David Pawson, who simply calls it action love. It's seeing a need and doing something about it. It's a love that takes the initiative. It's like it's always a step ahead. It's like a boss who asks his employee, how are you doing? And they reply, I'm actually really tired at the moment, and you know, I think it's affecting my work. And the boss replies, I had noticed you were tired, which is why I've given you the rest of the week off as paid leave. I'll cover your duties. I can't do plumbing, Greg, sorry. I'll, I'll cover your duties. Go home, rest up, and I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Now, when agape love goes wrong, oh, wait. Agape love, love never goes wrong. Why? Of all the loves, agape love reflects most directly God's love. The scriptures teach us that God is the source of agape love. Therefore, it is never disordered. In fact, agape love elevates and correctly orders the other four loves, to fulfill God's original intentions and design for our relationship with him and with one another. When we say God loves you, it's agape love that we're talking about. And this is the case in 1 Corinthians 13. And the reason I've labored over these definitions with you, and I hope you're still with me, and this is the fascinating conclusion I wanted to get at. Agape love is the only love that can be commanded. In John 15, 17, we read Jesus' very own words. This is what I command you. Love one another. The love used here is agape love action love, sourced in God himself. It is a supernatural love that is made possible as a result of being born again. It is part and parcel of being baptized in the Spirit. In fact, in Scripture, when we are commanded to love our enemies, only agape love is used. We're not called to befriend them or to marry them. But we are called to meet their needs. And this is a unique Christian position. 
It is not dependent on your feelings towards someone, or even God for that matter. God commands it. It is not dependent on familial connections. Your family background, for good or for bad, does not matter. God commands it. It is not dependent on your friendship circles or your business connections. There is only one hierarchical level, God and everyone else. And God commands it. God is the source of agape love, not your feelings, family connections, or friendship circles. But it's a commandment by God, and we can read the rest of this chapter with that understanding. So if we return to the chapter, and now at verse 4, we read, Love is patient. Love is kind. The love that defines God and by which he saves, adopts, and empowers his children with is patient. It is kind. The definition of agape love is so clearly connected with God in Scripture. God is literally defined as agape love that you can swap the word love for the person of Jesus. In fact, it is the ability to personify the definition of love beyond more than an emotional experience or a pleasing, well-worded concept that we can all approve of that lifts Christianity way out of the same category of philosophy or religion or art and establish it, establishes it as a relationship with our creator. And this is my point. Shakespeare cannot replace his own definition of love with himself. The line from Sonnet 116, love is not love which, which alters when it alteration finds or bends the remover to remove cannot be replaced with William is not William which alters when alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. It doesn't really make sense. It sounds absurd and no one would believe it anyway and it certainly wouldn't have become a classic piece of literature. Well, Bob Dylan couldn't write, how many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? The answer, my friend, is me. <laughs> the answer is me. But that's exactly what we can do here. 1 Corinthians is an incredibly practical letter where out of pastoral necessity, Paul is tackling some big issues head on. But we mustn't lose sight of how Christ-centered his teaching is. Paul establishes all his points in Christ-centered theology. He wants the Corinthians, and indeed us, to know Jesus and to have their lives, our lives, individually and corporately shaped by God's grace through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we can take out love and replace it with Jesus. Let's give it a go. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. 
is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking. He is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Jesus finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, I struggled to understand verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, until I made Jesus the subject. I didn't understand love in this context as a verb until it became a person to whom I could relate and trust. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things according to his will and in line with his character. Do you want to know what this looks like? The patience and kindness of Jesus led him to the cross. This is the result of Jesus rejoicing in the truth of himself. This is Jesus bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things for the sake of the salvation he would provide as a result of his agape love. What Jesus did on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins is the world's ultimate expression of agape love in all time. He knew the need, took the initiative, and did something about it. But it also looks like this. Jesus risen in glory. In verse 8, it says that love never ends. And this image is what Paul means. Jesus' victory over death is an eternal victory, accomplished once and for all. Jesus' reign never ends. He is alive and on the throne next to the right hand of God the Father and is king of creation and he is coming back. Amen? Amen. And he wants the Corinthian church to have this eternal perspective. Let's read the rest of the section. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will come to an end. Prophecies, they're a good gift from God, but we should pursue this gift while on this side of, and we should pursue this gift while on this side of eternity for the purpose of building his kingdom. But the gift of prophecy is not eternal. It's the same for tongues. They are gifts that point us to the eternal God, to be used for the edifying of the body of Christ and to save souls en route to eternity. And they are a means to an end. And it's an important means. 
God is at work in us. The purpose and result in our faith in Christ is to become more Christ-like in our actions and our thinking. Like Adam taught last week, the changing of our minds is normal Christianity. This is how Paul puts it. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I taught like a child. I thought like a child, sorry. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. But then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Paul is offering some counsel here, showing that our faith is a process of growth over time. When we are born again, much like the physical body analogy that Paul uses a lot in this letter, we grow and develop from an immature faith into a maturing faith. And that is an ongoing process. And part of the way we do that is to discern and accept the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And in agape love, put them into action for the benefit of others. Now at this point, I feel I need to give you some practical advice. Because some of you might be thinking, I am already maxed out in my giving. I don't know if I can give anymore. I'm already stretched at home, stretched at work, stretched at church. God is not asking you to do more and more and more. He's asking you to do what you do with a sacrificial heart. And perhaps there are some things you need to stop because you're not actually doing them out of agape love. I'll be honest, when John asked if I could preach on this chapter, I was a little hesitant because I knew it would be the summer holidays. We would have just got back from both church camp and Creation Fest. And at the time, we were in the middle of buying a house, and I suspected this would be the time we would be working on moving in, which has turned out to be the case. <laughs> There's a lot going on. But when I did some initial study, I realized that preaching would be an act of love, agape love. Not just for John, so that he could have some time off, but also it's a way in which I can love each of you. In my role as an elder, this is an act of love. It's also an act of love from Rachel, who has supported me disappearing off for a few evenings and leaving her with the kids' bedtime routine on her own. So I could hardly say no to preaching on a sermon about sacrificial love. I think John knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> but instead of just taking on more, trust that the Spirit of Jesus is at work in you. And listen to how he might be encouraging you to agape love those around you. He's not setting you up for burnout but to know your gifts 
and enable you to use them. In 1 John 4, verses 16 and 19, we read, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. We love because he first loved us. Now remember, God is the source and initiator of his love. So as you step out and agape love others, God's spirit is already doing the same for you. God uses his love to shape us into the image of Christ. In his next letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 2, verse 18, Paul writes, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And in John 15, Verses 1 to 2, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. God is an intentional gardener and pruner. Last week, on the way back from Creation Fest, we stopped over for the night at my parents' house in Gorsley, Herefordshire. And when you arrive, you are greeted by a pretty impressive grapevine that travels right across the front of the house from one side to the other. And as you can see by the photo, it's a double-fronted bay window house with a front door in the middle, and the vine travels along the edge of the top of the windows across the top of the door. It's genuinely quite impressive, especially with big bunches of grapes that you have to dodge when you walk into the house. My dad is very proud of his work, and not without good reason, as pruning a grapevine to get it to travel along this very specific direction takes a lot of commitment and intentionality. And it's been a project over eight years in the making. He was also quick to share, he's a pastor, how the process has illuminated the concept of God as a gardener, cutting and pruning branches. Now, when we think of pruning an apple tree, for example, here in the UK, we think of perhaps pruning once a year, but more, more likely every couple of years, to maintain the shape and fruitfulness of the tree. But when you are pruning a grapevine, as John 15 indicates, it's an ongoing process every week throughout the year. And especially so when the grapes are growing, to make sure they are exposed to enough sunlight. This is how the original audience of John's gospel would have instinctively understood pruning. An eight-year process, but weekly, if not daily, pruning. But look at the fruit. If you just 
leave a grapevine. It grows out of control and in every direction. And all the energy that goes into that unnecessary, wild and disorderly growth affects the quality of the fruit. No church is perfect. And the church in Corinth clearly had some issues to work through. But God loves his church. And by his grace, used Paul to give instruction and leadership in his pruning process to lead them into becoming more Christ-like. And I want to end on what I believe is a prophetic instruction for Servants Church. At Creation Fest last week, I attended a seminar for church leaders called Resilience and Renewal. And there were some good testimonies of how God is drawing people to his church. One small church of 50 has already seen over 100 new people attending their church this year, including over 50 baptisms. And this came after quitting all their programs except their Sunday morning service. So no youth, no alpha, all of that. Instead, They committed to meeting as a church every evening, each week, for a number of months, just to hear corporately from God about what he wanted and how he wanted to lead them. And after a few weeks, they began seeing a number of remarkable moves of the Spirit. But his testimony was followed with some wise advice, stating, each church is different with a different collection of gifts, as Adam taught last week. So we shouldn't just run out and copy what they have done, believing it to be a special formula. Instead, explore how God might be leading our own churches. And so I prayed in that moment, Lord, what do you want for servants' church? And I realized in that moment that the Lord, the Lord spoke to me pretty much instantly and he said, you know what it is. It's in your name, Servants Church. Renaming the church from Calvary Chapel Norwich to Servants Church was a prophetic It might not have been realized in this way at the time. But nonetheless, I believe this is what God wants us to know now. And perhaps some of you have already believed this to be the case. And if so, let us know. But be encouraged. All of you here, we are all We are already outworking our name. I believe this is already deep-rooted in the character of our church. It is the trajectory we are on. But take confidence into stepping further into this identity. 
as we show agape love to one another and to our communities, I believe God will use you as a church in this way. And our reputation will grow in this way. And I believe God would have us understand that what we are learning in 1 Corinthians at the moment is how to be more servants' church. The work of the Spirit is to manifest Jesus. God's Spirit is working in us, individually and corporately, as a local church. God has given us each different gifts, necessarily so. God has commanded that we exercise these gifts out of agape love. Love that is sourced in God himself. A supernatural love that is empowered by his spirit enables us to take the initiative, sacrificially seek the well-being of others before ourselves and by the unity that comes from God's spirit point to the servant king, Jesus, so that more souls in our city can be saved. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us today. Well, thank you that your spirit moves amongst us. It stirs our own spirit. It moves us as a corporate body, a church, Lord, that is your bride. And Lord, who you want to love yourself so that we can go out and love those that need to hear more about you. Lord, I pray that this will be evident now as we go out from church today, that you would stir in us, Lord, that understanding of agape love. Lord, allow us, show us how to take the initiative to be selfless. And Lord, as we receive that, as we have received that from you by your death and resurrection, Lord, may we go out and be your disciples in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.